Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I'll have seven main points to make, and seven is a number you are familiar with in the menorah. There it symbolizes the seven heavens, or the seven heavenly bodies that have a movement different from the movement of the fixed stars. But if you think about it, you also have seven openings in your head, two ears, two eyes, two nostrils, making six, and then in the middle, the big one, corresponding to the sun, that would be, that's the mouth. Much of our life passes through those seven openings. Sevens are also mysteriously in other places, seven notes in the scale. When you get to the octave, you're back to the same note. So seven has been an important number. For John Paul II, beauty is a very important part of the argument. And I think the book is written with the sensibility of a philosopher, a theologian, but also a poet who knows about the power of the word. This picture of Our Lady is my favorite picture of Our Lady, and simply because when I lived in Innsbruck, my father studied there and had his first job there. That's the great Marian image in the cathedral in Innsbruck. And I used to say mass there. Here you can see a little bit where the picture is lodged in the main altar of the cathedral in Innsbruck. So as a mass server, I used to look up. Now I can look at it closely on the computer, <laughs> which I haven't been able to do. So we'll begin with, uh, with the ear, the first of the points. In John Paul II's Theology of the Body, a fundamental point is that the gospel has primacy. He discusses the moral issue of contraception in the context of the gospel, the gospel proclaimed by the church, received in hearing, so hearing is a good place to begin. This is now a text from the very beginning of the theology of the body, when Christ, according to Matthew 19, appeals to the beginning. He does not point only to the state of original innocence as a lost horizon. How beautiful it would be, but it's impossible. We can't do it. We're not innocent. As a lost horizon 
of human existence in history. And now comes the main point right at the beginning of, of the theology of the body in talk number four. To the words that he speaks with his own lips, we have the right to attribute at the same time the whole eloquence of the mystery of redemption. He doesn't speak primarily as a moral teacher who lays certain demands on us, although he does that too. But he speaks as the Redeemer who makes possible for us to live what he says. There's this wonderful phrase of uh, Augustine where he says, the law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law can be followed. Right from the beginning, it's in the context of redemption. The whole theology of the body is about the redemption of the body, a Pauline phrase in chapter 8 of Romans. And the mystery of redemption, of course, is the mystery of the cross. This is the great uh, crucified in the Isenheim altar in Kolmanau. It's an altar that was painted in the Gothic period for a hospital of people sick with the plague, also other diseases, but um, it's been a place of pilgrimage in a way for a long time. Here you have the price, as it were, of the redemption of the body. And one of the most important images of the body, that is, the suffering in the body of God himself, of the Son of God, who takes our nature as his own. This is a shot of Wojtyla, who was compelled to leave the university immediately after the Nazis arrived after his first year of university, and he wasn't able to study anymore at the university. The Nazis destroyed the university, and uh, here he is working, or at least comfortably uh, taking a break for a short moment. And this is the other mystery that belongs to the mystery of redemption as well. That's on the same Isenheim altarpiece by Matthias Grunewald, the resurrection of Christ, an extraordinary picture from the heavy stone of the grave. And you can see that huge heavy stone in the background, the rock under which the soldier bends. And out of it rises first in blue and then going over into red and green the figure of the risen Christ. Both images are fundamental and true for locating a discussion of the body. Here's now a brief explanation he gives when uh, a little bit later, not uh, still toward the beginning, 
it seems that the words of Romans 8.23 just quoted, and those are the words, we expect the redemption of our bodies, our adoption as sons. It's interesting, the redemption of the body and the adoption as sons are brought together. Trinitarian assimilation to the Son of God. The words of Romans 8.23 just quoted, best express the direction of our research, centered on the revelation of that beginning to which Christ appealed in his dialogue about the indissolubility of marriage. That's a hard teaching, as everybody knows. But if you think of it, it makes possible what in fact is dearest to those who love each other, namely that they want to make a definitive gift. One that can't be taken back as the form of a vow in which one really leaves oneself and comes to belong to another person very mysterious and deeply fulfilling process. I've always dreamed of uh, swimming down the Niagara Falls. Um, it must be a tremendous thrill. <laughs> and I imagine as you swim along on the river horizontally, there comes the moment when you give a last push and then down it goes. Some people survive, but <laughs> it's true of marriage as well. <laughs> so it's interesting that the complete gift of self is built right in the very beginning of his account of the body the very first teaching of Jesus he turns to, which is the teaching about divorce and Jesus' statement that from the beginning it was not so. All our further analyses, also based on the first chapters of Genesis, will almost necessarily reflect the truth of the Pauline words. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, this is now the Pauline text, grown inwardly while we wait for the redemption of our bodies, and Paul continues, our adoption as sons. We place ourselves in this position, so that's the position with which the theology of the body begins, so profoundly in harmony with experience, that is, the experience of sin and the experience of faith, of trust in redemption. The beginning must speak to us with the great wealth of light that comes from Revelation, to which above all theology desires to respond. I think that's important to point out at the very beginning. The eye. I refrain from drawing circles around those beautiful eyes as, as about the... But the eyes of baby Jesus there are... 
Could we lower the lights a little bit? I, I think you can, you'll be able to see the, how is, how is the quality of the picture? All right. This is, you, you, you won't be able to read it in detail, the first page, handwritten page of the Theology of the Body in Polish. And in the left-hand corner is the usual AMDG at Majorum Dei Gloriam. And in the right-hand corner is the state, is the sentence, Tota Pulkreis Maria, you're all beautiful, Mary. And it's dated um, eighth of December, seventy-four. That's when he began it. When he was still Archbishop in Krakow. That's the feast of the Immaculate Conception, and this Latin phrase "You are all beautiful, Mary." is an antiphon from the Feast of the Immaculate Conception with the word Mary substituted for what you have in the Song of Songs, you're all beautiful, my friend. Beauty stands right at the beginning. Here is what he writes in Crossing the Threshold of Hope. Easy to remember in the English edition, it's page one, two, three. So. If you can remember the Trinity, you're set. As a young priest, I learned to love human love. This has been one of the fundamental themes of my priesthood, my ministry in the pulpit, in the confessional, and also in my writing. He had become friends as a student pastor with a number of young couples who were just at that moment then going through the experience of love, marriage, the first children, and so on. And he accompanied them with very personal attention. If one loves human love, there naturally arises the need to commit oneself completely to the service of fair love, one of the attributes of Mary is mother of beautiful love. That's from the Septuagint of um, Ecclesiasticus or Ben Sira. Because love is fair, it is beautiful. So he was touched by the beauty of love between man and woman and decided to devote himself entirely, totus tuus, to that ministry for that reason. And that's, that's fairly important to know. Among the gifts, this is now an, another text, I think, and this text is one of the two centers, I think. It's the spiritual center of the theology of the body. The theological center will come to at the very end, but this is the spiritual center of the theology of the body. 
among the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the one most congenial to the virtue of purity seems to be the gift of reverence, or is sebeia, donum pietatis. It's the sensibility for the presence of what's holy as it comes toward you or you come toward it. Now you might think of uh, pietas, piety, primarily in the context, say, of saying the rosary or going to mass or going to pray, that you encounter the holy in the love of your spouse. That isn't a frequent thought people have, but it is fundamental for him. The virtue of purity is set on the foundation of a sensibility for the greatness of what goes on in the love between man and woman, namely that their bodies become sacramental signs, effective sacramental signs, in which grace, the grace of participation in the life of the Trinity, passes. Thanks to the gift of reverence, Paul's words, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you and that you do not belong to yourselves, take on the eloquence of an experience. Here, key word. Beauty is one of the main themes, experience another. And I think it's the combination of those two together that are, that's particularly powerful. A distant beauty that's far from experience can rouse nostalgia a beauty which can be, as it were, tested in experience has a tremendous power to transform. He had that experience of the beauty of love and the result was his total dedication to the service of beautiful love. By the way, that entire paragraph was missing in the older translation. It's one of the most important. They also open fullest access to the experience of the spousal meaning of the body. That is, that our bodies are made to be given as a total gift. Down the Niagara Falls of the adventures of marriage. The spousal meaning of the body and of the freedom of the gift by which he understands the freedom to give. To give something, you have to have it. If I give you this remote control, JJ will not be happy because it belongs to the university and not to me. How is it that I can be in possession of myself to give myself? Well, virtue is necessary if I'm driven around by passion without much to say about it, I can't really give myself. 
So love the freedom of the gift connected with it. The freedom in which the deep face of purity and its organic link with love reveals itself. Chastity has a name and purity is, is his preferred word. In Polish at least it's always purity. It's never um, the Latin root word. Um, chastity can easily have a flavor of staleness, marriage as the end of erotic passion. Um, but no, purity has a deep face and it's connected with love. It's a mode in which love realizes itself. And here comes then what, what I think is really a central spiritual statement in the whole book. Purity is the glory of the human body before God. It is the glory of God in the human body through which masculinity and femininity are manifested. Extraordinary statement. If you think of the prologue to the Gospel of John, at the high point of the prologue where it says, and the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And now comes the first effect of the incarnation. And we have seen his glory. And then John goes on in the prologue and says, a glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of gift and truth. It's usually translated grace. That's the Latin equivalent of, of gift. Um, I think it's, it, it's good to translate it as gift because it, the emphasis in John, I think, is right there as it is in John Paul II. So, a glory full of gift and truth. That's the glory communicated to us and expressed in the human body when love is authentic and deep. In John 17, Jesus says, to the Father, the glory you have given me, and that seems to be the eternal glory he receives as the Son from the Father, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one. This little word as turns out to be absolutely crucial. From purity springs that singular beauty that permeates every sphere of reciprocal common life between human beings and allows them to express in it, and I, I just love this next uh, series of terms there, the simplicity and depth, the cordiality and unrepeatable authenticity 
of personal trust. That is, that you really entrust yourself to somebody. You don't know the future. Marriage is a crazy adventure. Like swimming down the Niagara Falls. Um, personal trust. And the church holds us to a decision we made when we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> There's something marvelous and beautiful about that. You don't, you can't anticipate the future. I don't know if what I would have thought had I known everything that was going to happen in the marriage of my wife and me. At the very end, I have a picture from the very beginning of our marriage when we met John Paul. Here, the more mature John Paul, an intense, he is apparently engaged in some discussion, and uh, that's the kind of discussant one would like to have. He's totally intent on you. And here, another picture. Isn't it amazing that the body can express thought? You can see him think. One would think that the only thing you can see is color and shape. But no. Here, the man's deep interiority is absolutely evident. You, you, you see that in the concentration. That's one of the most important themes in the theology of the body, that the body expresses the person. The person, since the person, as he claims, very anti-Cartesian statement, is a body. Maybe we can discuss that in the question and answer. Since the person is a body, of course, there is a spiritual principle there too, but the most universal genus is the, the person, the human person, is a bodily substance. So the person is a body, and everything in the person has the dignity of personal life, called to love in a bodily fashion. Here another picture where he greets somebody. The one thing that uh, strikes me about John Paul is the intensity of his encounters with people. He Celibacy for him really gave rise to a fatherhood that, that, that was extraordinary. And the typical slightly self-deprecating smile, very, very deep. But even late in his life, despite all the disfigurement there was a tremendous beauty in him. If you, if you look at that, that's it's amazing. And this, after his death, 
It's in Poland, a huge poster, and they had a shot with a lady walking in front of the poster with, with her flower. I guess she's going to deposit the flower at the um, place. I love that picture because it's, it's also immensely beautiful. Did you ever think an old man could be beautiful? This one is. Now, the nose. The nose is an organ with which we have a very intense sensation of what's pleasant and unpleasant. You can look at a piece of dirt with equanimity but if the smell of it gets to you, it really... So the nose is, in a mysterious way, related to good and bad, a good smell, a bad smell. This is the beginning of the Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Wine, as everybody knows, it, it involves the nose to a large degree. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is perfume. Your name is perfume poured out. Therefore the maidens love you. By the way, in Shakespeare, in Romeo and Juliet, in the balcony scene, there's a fabulous dialogue between, well, Romeo's listening in as Juliet is pouring out her heart at, on the balcony. He's not really supposed to be listening. And much of it is about the name. And Juliet goes back and forth between saying, well, the name is really nothing. A rose would smell just as sweet by another name. But then the very last line before Romeo comes in is, Romeo doth thy name, and for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. That's theology of the body succinctly expressed, says Shakespeare, manages it. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a bag of myrrh that lies between my breasts. In the Gospel of John, there's a very important scene with Nard. Six days before Jesus' passion, it's the beginning of the last week. There is a feast at the house of Lazarus, and Mary, sister of Lazarus, pours half a liter of nard, pure nard, on Jesus. And I, I was always wondering, well, what does nard really smell like? And I had never smelt nard until I got on the internet with Amazon, <laughs> the universal cause of being that, that brings everything to the house. And uh, finally, now I know what nard is. It, it's, it's a remarkable substance. 
it's incredibly potent. Uh, when you first pour it, if, if somebody has a napkin, I'll, I'll do it on, on several napkins and then you can pass them around and, and smell them. If there's some napkins around, I'll do that. The, the, the first smell is like a good Cuban cigar. I, I like, uh, yeah, well, Cuban cigars are good. But then it slowly sweetens. Good, and that has, has no menthol on it or, or no. stuff like that. So your nard is coming. And, and, and these, are, these are just a few drops. So imagine a half a liter being poured out over somebody. That person must have, that is Jesus must have smelt of this the whole week that uh, he, uh, of, of the passion. And in fact, he says this mysterious thing in the Gospel of John when Judas protests, he says, if somebody wants to pick up some more, there's some more so you can rub your finger on it. It's okay, that, that may be enough. Yeah. Well, uh, it's on back order uh, uh, with Not Amazon. Has a half liter hanging around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's an amazing substance because it, the plant grows in the Himalaya mountains between 5,000 and 7,000 meters. They've managed to grow some in the Japanese mountains, but the Himalaya mountains is where it's where it grows and then it's the farmers go up and in very difficult places they dig out the root and distill it and that's what you get. So it's not surprising that it costs, that in the ancient world it cost so much. It was the prime perfume. What is it with us that we don't savor this good and beauty, many of us don't savor it to the same degree that John Paul seems to be able to. I think the answer is because we have systematically thrown out from reason, that is from, we've thrown out the good, from reason. We've made good a subjective value judgment. And this part of my talk is about how that happened. That's closely related to what you, Father, talked about. It's more the, the mindset that goes with an industrialized society. We can begin with Francis Bacon. Not because bacon smells good in the morning, but um, he says, human knowledge and power coincide in the same. He's often quoted as saying, knowledge is power, but the next uh, sentence clarifies that. 
nature is conquered by obeying. So a conquest is to take place. And so these twin intentions, namely those of human knowledge and power, truly coincide in the same. A similar idea in Descartes. It's possible to reach knowledge that will be powerfully useful to life. And instead of the speculative philosophy, which is now taught in the schools, which is powerfully useless for life, <laughs> we can find a practical one by which knowing the force and the actions, notice what he all includes here, of fire, water, air, stars, the heavens, and all the other bodies that surround us as distinctly as we know the various skills of our artisans. We can employ them in the same way for all the uses for which they're fit. So nature is a great arsenal of artisans. In antiquity, they would have called them slaves. And so make ourselves masters and possessors of nature. That's, I think, a kind of first principle of Descartes' philosophy that goes far toward explaining what exactly goes on in the meditations? Why it is that you begin with radical doubt and then you end up with a world that's the perfectly proportionate object of the mathematical science of mechanics. Bacon was clear about that already. This is what uh, Bacon says. And it's interesting, the reference to Aristotle. At the beginning of the Renaissance, the Aristotelian mechanics was discovered. It was not known in the Middle Ages. It's probably by a student of Aristotle, scholars say, not by Aristotle himself. But toward the beginning of the treatise, the author says, physics and mathematics beget practice and mechanics. Optime Aristoteles, physicam et mathematicam generare Practicam sive mechanicam. So physical observation, Aristotle says, and mathematics, when you combine them, you can figure out how a trireme works, how to best make the oars work. And so Bacon deduces from this the following demand, a demand that everything to do with natural phenomena, be they bodies or virtues, by virtues he means powers, should, as far as possible, be set down, counted, weighed, measured, and defined. For we are after works, not speculations. And indeed, a good marriage, interesting, a good marriage, of physics and mathematics begets practice. There's an interesting other passage about marriage on the same thing which I find horrifying. Knowledge should not be as a prostitute for pleasure, but as a wife for honorable generation, fruit, 
and comfort. Now that, it's not altogether wrong. I think he knows a bit more about marriage than many of our judges do. But um, for a Puritan, which Bacon was, doing something for its own sake because it's good is like using a prostitute for your own private pleasure. So the right thing to do with knowledge is not to pursue it for the sake of truth, but produce results. And results you can produce by means of the science of mechanics. Now it's a characteristic of the science of mechanics, Aristotle or pseudo-Aristotle in that treatise makes that very clear, that mathematics excludes the question of good or bad. And it doesn't do it because it's nasty, but it does it because it plays no role in mathematics. Mathematics is about quantity, and good and bad don't enter. Now what's the extent of power? You already saw something about the extent of power in Descartes, where we want to become masters and possessors of nature. But uh, Bacon is similar. Power over nature, potestas supernaturum. He also calls it the power and empire of the human race itself over the universe of things. Now, of course, I as a body am part of the universe of things. He seems to have forgotten that some bodies are somebody and not just a body. Humani generis ipsius potentia ad imperium in rerum universitatem. That's, that's very far-reaching. Pope Benedict thinks that in that philosophical point of departure lies a decisive, formative moment of modernity. We must take a look at the foundations of the modern age. These appear with particular clarity in the thought of Francis Bacon. What is the basis of the new era? It is the new correlation of experiment and method that enables man to arrive at an interpretation of nature in conformity with its laws. It's interesting that it's at that point in the study of nature that the notion of law, laws of nature, which are descriptive mathematical laws, really came to the fore. They didn't play as much of a role in the study of nature before. And thus finally to achieve the triumph of art over nature. Victoria cursus artis supernatura. Actually, the victory of the running of art over nature. Anyone who reads and reflects on these statements attentively will recognize that a disturbing step 
has been taken. And this is really an interesting argument because it is an argument about the roots of secularization. A partial argument, and there, there are many factors involved there, but a, a, a substantial root as he sees it. Up to that time, the recovery of what man had lost through the expulsion from paradise was expected from faith in Jesus Christ. Herein lay redemption. Now this redemption, the restoration of the lost paradise, is no longer expected from faith, but from the newly discovered link between science, and that means mathematical mechanics, and praxis. It's not that faith is simply denied. Bacon himself remained a pious Puritan in, in many respects. Rather, it's displaced onto another level, that of purely private and otherworldly affairs. One way in which Bertolt Brecht put it, I think is helpful. He says, and this picks up themes of, of, of your lecture father, in an agrarian society where the farmer depends on the weather, it makes sense for him to pray for his daily bread. But if you live in a city and the city has machines and they produce the bread, you don't have to pray. It makes no sense to pray for bread. It comes from the factory. It doesn't come from God. And at the same time, it becomes somehow irrelevant for the world, because the world is governed by mathematical law that became increasingly an axiom. All things in nature follow mathematical laws. This programmatic vision has determined the trajectory of modern times, and it also shapes the present-day crisis of faith, which is essentially a crisis of Christian hope. Yeah, when you swim down the Niagara Fall, you may not have much hope of surviving, but um, hope is the only reasonable grounds on which to enter marriage. Thus, hope too in Bacon acquires a new form. Now it is called faith in progress. For Bacon, it is clear that a totally new world will emerge, the kingdom of man, in which the kingship of God, okay, yeah, you can talk about it, but we are in charge. We save the planet, first the whales and then the planet. Here, I, I thought I should treat you to a picture of progress, an old American picture of progress. You can probably date it from the kind of vehicles that are there. I don't know if you can see that the beautiful woman with her half-naked leg has a big coil of telephone or telegraph wire in her arm, and she is draping it over the poles that are there. 
And in the left-hand corner are the Indians and the bears um, looking grim and terrible, and they're fleeing from the light as progress advances. Leon Cass is a thinker who has put his finger on these things with great precision. Our views of the meaning of our humanity have been so transformed by the scientific technological approach to the world and to life that we're in danger of forgetting what we have to lose, humanly speaking. We shall have little chance of protecting ourselves against the dangers of a runaway biotechnology if we do not adequately understand what is at stake. If we do not recognize which human goods are in danger and worth defending, the first thing needful is a correction and deepening of our thinking. I think that's a, it's a beautiful passage. It doesn't surprise me that he undertook to write a commentary on Genesis. Because right at the beginning, God saw everything he had made, and indeed, indeed, it was very good. And that was not a socially constructed value imposed by God on things, but it was the divine judgment about the actual being of things. It's really good. I want to read you a text of a, of a mystery man before giving away who it is, because I think this is another marvelous text. But I think you'll be slightly surprised by who wrote it. The Cartesian approach, this, this could be a, an excellent argument in the whole contraception debate and also gay marriage debate. The Cartesian approach to the human story allows us to believe that we are separate from the earth, entitled to view it as nothing more than an inanimate, inanimate collection of resources, that we can exploit however we like. And this fundamental misperception has led us to a current crisis. We have assumed that our lives need have no real connection to the natural world, that our minds are separate from our bodies, and that as disembodied intellects we can manipulate the world in any way we choose. That is our mentality, no doubt. It would be surprising if the majority of Catholics did not practice contraception. Well, we take antibiotics. If you have an infection, you take an antibiotic. Any problem has a technical solution. We're told that from kindergarten on. Precisely because we feel no connection to the physical world, we trivialize the consequences of our actions. Hans Jonas has written marvelous things about this. He compares our present cultural situation with that of the ancient Gnostics. 
This is also something John Paul II does. He calls our age a Neo-Manichaean age. But Jonas points out that the cosmos of the Gnostics, the material cosmos of the Gnostics, which was created by the devil, and it's full of demons, is still somewhat meaningful. It gives direction to your life out, out from the material cosmos. That's what you need to do. Escape from the body. That's a direction. And then he says, whereas the indifferent nature of modern science gives absolutely no direction to life, that's the really bottomless pit, he calls it. And because this linkage seems abstract, you know, when you talk to people, what are you talking about? Hugging the earth or connecting with nature? We're slow to understand what it means to destroy those parts of the environment that are crucial to our survival. We are in effect bulldozing the gardens of Eden, which is John Paul's thesis about the human heart. We are bulldozing. Now, who might have said that? Would you have expected that? I don't know if it was the ghost rider or the, or the man himself, but it's very good, I think. Bit of a problem with that he's mainly interested in the food supply <laughs> and uh, doesn't seem to worry about the other things. So that was an attempt further along the lines of what you did, Father, to pinpoint where the difficulties lie that we have with... Let me ask you a question. Space and time, those are familiar things to you, aren't they? Pretty evident stuff. When you read philosophers in the past, you discover that most of them don't have a concept of space as something existing in its own right, so that between the top of my head and the sole of my feet, there are two things. There's Michael Waldstein and there's a little bit of space in the same place. In Newton, space and time are parts of God. They are the divine sense organs by which God is present to things. They're kind of hypostasized divine attributes. Well, we inherited them in a secularized form. From kindergarten on, you were told about space and, and time, in fact, about space-time. Um, almost nobody raises the question, well, is there such a thing? The mouth has really the decisive thing to speak. Uh, uh, can you see this? Here the formatting wouldn't obey me and uh, um, this is Gaudium et Spes 24.3, about which John Paul II, in the Theology of the Body, makes remarkable statements. It contains, he says, the whole truth about man. So, I tell my students in the Theology of the Body class, if you want to get an A in this class, the recipe is very simple. 
Whatever question I may ask you on the final exam, answer it the same way. Kaudumitz Bez 24-3. <laughs> and you'll have an assured A. But you'll have to think about it. That is, why is it so? Let's read through the text. Indeed, the Lord Jesus, when he prays to the Father that all may be one as we are one, and remember that's one of the sections in which, or one of the ways in which that phrase recurs in John 17 is the glory I have, you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. Thus offering vistas closed to human reason. So this is a mystery of faith which Jesus opens up for us. Indicates a certain likeness between the union of the divine persons and the union of God's sons in truth and love. There's a likeness. The word as contains the likeness. This likeness shows, and now you get two things, that man, who is the only creature on earth God willed for itself, God has our good in mind, we're not tools, instruments in some anonymous scheme, but God wills us for ourselves. But we cannot fully find ourselves except through a sincere gift of self. And then you get the quote from Luke 17, 33. How can you read it on the, on, on the board? Is it visible at all? It's, it's kind of, pardon? Good, oh good. So yesterday's problems are gone. Excellent. Good. And Luke 17, 33, is one of the instances of a saying of Jesus that occurs six times in the Gospels. One of the very few sayings that occurs that often, twice in Matthew, twice in Luke. And this particular passage in Luke, the way it reads is, the one who makes his life secure will lose it. The, the Greek word is peripoieo, you, you, you make a fence around it or you make something around it, a wall or, or something. So the one who makes his life secure will lose it. The one who loses his life will make it live. Will beget it into life. Very striking formulation. I think that's why they chose this particular text among all the six to refer to. Even though Matthew is closer, the one who finds his life will lose it and the one who loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel will find it. So the finding is, is, is not there in Luke, but I think they were struck. I'm going to now make an attempt to unfold this text a little bit because this is the, in some ways, the theological nucleus, which he then later, and at the end of my talk, will get to that text where he spells out his own main thesis. First of all, the logic of that text. The image of the Trinity is the fundamental idea in it. 
as we are one. So it's taken from John. That's the basis for understanding the two laws of the life of persons. First, the personalistic norm, which is closely related to our self-knowledge and self-possession, so the whole aspect of experience, the lived experience of personal subjectivity, and it reappears in the term finding oneself, and the law of the gift, that you only find yourself in giving yourself, and all of that is possible only in following Christ. So Luke 17.33 gets quoted at the end. So it's, it's a passage that stretches from the Trinity through us to the cross. Uh, it recently occurred to me, oh, this is obvious. What's, what's the basic sign that we use all the time? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We trace the cross on ourselves, and we speak the name of the Trinity. That's, those are the two poles of the text. No pun intended. You'll see, because we're two of the pole, um, may well have written it. So it begins with the Trinity, a likeness between the Trinity and us. What comes from God is bound to be like it, like God. Whatever comes out of a fire must be hot. It has the attributes, and it ends with the cross. And in between you have these two laws of the life of persons. And this is closely related to a kind of Johanna and Golden chain of love in two passages. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. You see how that's a chain with one gripping into the other? Because as I have loved you, that corresponds exactly to the so I have loved you. So, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As I love you, so you are to love one another. This text in Gaudium et Spes seems to play around this chain, this golden chain in the um, Gospel of John. There's a certain contrariety between these two laws. The Trinitarian likeness, the text says, shows that man, who is the only creature on earth God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through sincere gift of self. So the first law speaks about the very beginning. It's rooted in human nature. It's accessible to the eyes of reason. The second law speaks about the end, and it's rooted in the gift of grace. What God meant by says, closed to human reason, that's, that's to be taken very seriously. At the same time, they're complementary. 
They can be compared to two eyes, two glasses with which one can see more clearly, two hands, two handles by which one can pick up any load. They're the structuring principle by which John Paul discusses the three original experiences, original solitude, it's very easy to see how that relates to the personalistic norm and personal subjectivity, and original unity to the law of the gift, and original nakedness is an expression of the fullness with which these two laws are lived. An interesting passage in 15.5 in the Theology of the Body. The body has a spousal meaning because the human person, as the Council says, is a creature that God willed for his own sake and that at the same time cannot fully find himself except through the sincere gift of self. So what's he, what's he done there? He said, he's saying the central thesis of the whole book, namely the body has a spousal meaning, what are its reasons? The two principles in Gaudium it's based 24.3. So you understand now why I tell my students just answer Gaudium it's best 24.3 and then start thinking to make sense of it. The first of those norms you have very clearly articulated in the Nicomachean Ethics where Aristotle says of love of lifeless objects we don't use the word friendship, for it's not mutual love, antiphilesis. Nor is there a wishing of good to the other. It would surely be funny to wish wine well. If one wishes anything for it, it is that it may keep so that one may have it oneself. But to a friend we say we should wish what is good for his sake. In Kant, this personalistic norm, or something like it, plays an important role, but it's really fundamentally different. This is a quote from the Critique of Practical Reason. While man is unholy enough, the humanity in his person must be holy to him. In all of creation, everything one might want and over which one has power can be used as a mere means. So there he has adopted the Baconian Cartesian project hook, line, and sinker. But he's worried about the human person in that. What happens to the human person? Only man himself and with him every rational creature is end in itself for in virtue of the autonomy of his freedom, he is the subject of the moral law which is holy. From Kant then flows a continuous discourse that we are swimming in the middle of, where personal dignity seems to be in some way the cardinal moral principle. It's interesting how Wojtyla corrects Kant. Immanuel, this is from Love and Responsibility. Immanuel Kant formulated the following imperative. Act always in such a way that the other person 
is the end and not merely the instrument of your action. This principle, Vatiba says, should be restated in a form rather different from that which Kant gave it as follows. Whenever a person is the object of your activity, remember that you may not treat that person as only the means to an end, as an instrument, but must allow for the fact that he or she has, or at least should have, distinct personal ends. There's, of course, a big difference. As, as Christians, we say God is our end, our goal. Our heart is restless until it rests in you. God is an end we have and not an end we are. A big difference between having an end and being an end. Unless you mean by being an end, being the beneficiary of the good. That is a frequent way of using the word end. But at any rate, Vativa clarifies it here. In love and responsibility, you find these same two principles on the basis of which he establishes or explains the spousal meaning of the body, clearly articulated several years before Gaudium et Spes. That's why I think either somebody reading love and responsibility got it from there, or that he himself, since he was involved in the drafting committee, um, wrote it and now praises it as the sum of wisdom. One person can give himself or herself, can surrender entirely to another. That's the Niagara Fall. Yeah. Whether to a human person or to God. And such a giving of the self creates a special form of love, which we define as spousal love. This fact goes to prove that the person has a dynamism of its own, and that specific laws govern its existence and evolution. Christ gave expression to this in a saying which is on the face of it profoundly paradoxical. The one who finds his life will lose it, and the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. Same thing. And he continues, the fullest, the most uncompromising form of love consists precisely in self-giving, in making one's inalienable and non-transferable eye someone else's property. This is doubly paradoxical. First, in that it is possible to step outside of one's own eye in this way, and secondly, in that the eye far from being destroyed or impaired, is as a result enlarged and enriched, of course in a superphysical moral sense. The Gospel stresses this very clearly and unambiguously. Would lose, shall find, would save, shall lose. And he continues, you will readily see that we have here not merely the personalistic norm, which is the first of the two principles, but also bold and explicit words of advice about losing one's life, which he 
interprets as the gift of self, which makes it possible for us to amplify and elaborate on that norm. The world of persons possesses its own laws of existence and of development. So he identifies them as two fundamental laws. And then in the theology of the body, by appeal to Gaudium et Spes, they turn up as the explanation of the spousal meaning of the body. Now, the good, the good smell of humane vitae, the argument of humane vitae, let's take a brief look at it, and then I want to point out one difference in John Paul's argument, which seems to me very interesting, and then I'm concluding. So this is what uh, humane vitae says. The church teaches that every conjugal act must of necessity remain of itself or through itself ordered to the end, destinatus ad, so the word end is not there, but it's implicit in destinatus of procreating human life. That's usually translated as open to life, which is not a very close translation. So I'm, I've become a great opponent of openness to life. Um, there's a big difference between through itself ordered to, destinatus, and open to. They're concepts of a totally different order. This teaching rests on the indissoluble link established by God, which man on his own initiative may not break between the unitive meaning and the procreative meaning, both of which are inherent in the conjugal act. The reason is that due to its innermost account, ratio is the word there, the act of the conjugal relation, while it unites husband and wife by the closest bond, also makes them capable of generating new life according to laws written into the very nature of man and woman. In each of these essential accounts, namely of unity and of procreation, is preserved. The marriage act fully keeps the sense of mutual and true love and its order to the most high mission of parenthood to which man is called. Now here's the formulation in the theology of the body. In the conjugal act, it is not licit to separate artificially the meaning of love from the meaning that is sign of potential parenthood, because the one as well as the other belongs to the innermost truth of the conjugal act. So far, the same. Here's where the difference comes. The one is realized together with the other and now here it is. And in a certain way, the one through the other. That's what the encyclical teaches. Some brief remarks on that. That's a new note. That is, that the unitive meaning of the conjugal act is realized in part through the procreative meaning and the procreative meaning through the unitive meaning. But 
there seem to be obvious objections. Suppose a husband rapes his wife, a child can still be conceived. So in that case, you have a non-unitive act that is still procreative. This is where your work is so helpful, that procreation means for the church the fitting way for a human being to come to be. So an act in which a husband rapes his wife ceases to be procreative, it remains on some level a generative act, but it's not procreative in the full human sense. The difference is somewhat like the difference between eating and dinner or dining. Cows eat, but they don't dine. Dining is a specifically human act. Leon Cass has beautiful things to, to say about it. So when the unitive meaning is destroyed, the procreative meaning is destroyed by the same token. And now the interesting thing for Humanavite, of course, is the other way around. What happens if the procreative meaning is destroyed? He, he makes a claim which, again, prima facie seems wild. In such a case, when the conjugal act is deprived of its inner truth, because it's deprived artificially of potential parenthood, it also ceases to be an act of love. Well, wait a second. That, that, that seems wild, a wild claim. You mean when, when, when a man and a woman use contraceptives, it's as if they went into the basement and shut off the main power switch of their love and their love is gone? That's clearly contrary to experience. But I think what he's saying is that a very specific kind of unity of love between a man and a woman is built up by their performing an act which is in its nature procreative. Because you say to the other, I want you to be the parent of my children. I want your mind, your language, your culture to form our children. The children are the common good of the parents. That's a deep bond of unity. That's how he explains the indissolubility. The two depend upon each other. But now, here comes the sacrament, and I can probably leave that out and leave it to you and in the discussion. The main thesis, the main doctrinal thesis, I think, of the theology of the body, which is um, right here. The sacrament, marriage as the most original sacrament, as a visible sign is constituted through man as a body, through the body's visible masculinity and femininity. The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. 
it has been created to, now that's an interesting statement for a theology of the body, when you, when you get to that point, then your ears prick up. Okay, why is it that I am bodily? Why do I have a body, or more radically, why am I a body? To transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. That is the participation in Trinitarian life for which the conjugal act exactly in this simultaneity of unitive and procreative is the sacramental sign. So for him, the teaching of Humanavite comes down to speaking the sacramental sign truthfully and standing in front of it with reverence, with a sense that something holy is going on in it, which you don't simply manipulate with uh, the normal technical means that everybody uses. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.